Thanks for listening to today's episode of What the F*** is Biodiversity. My name is Jamie, and I work for the NGO, the National Environmental Treasure. We're spreading the word about the impact of biodiversity loss and how we can all protect our planet. Throughout our podcast series, we will explore the amazing world of biodiversity, why it's so vital for humans, what is causing its decline, and of course, tangible solutions for its conservation. Now, today's guest is Sheila Kola, a classically trained ecologist who is an assistant professor of environmental studies at York University and the principal investigator of the Native Pollinator Research Lab. Her research focuses on less understood native species like bees, butterflies, and flowering plants. Sheila works closely with environmental NGOs, landowners, academic partners, and government agencies at the local, provincial, and federal levels to ensure the best available science informs conservation management methods. Now, I'm not going to lie, today's episode is pretty awesome because Anne and Sheila talk all about bees. We learned so much while recording this episode. It's full of amazing information, so make sure you check out our episode notes on our website for links to the many references they make. Now, without further ado, here are Anne and Sheila. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us today. On the news this morning, however, there was some very sad news that only 340 right whales remain in the world. My God, it reminds me, I don't know if you ever saw the Star Trek movie where they saved the last whale on the planet. And I remember when I was younger how much that affected me. Mm -hmm. It was a really, really powerful. In fact, I've got the movie and sometimes I show it to my students. So your research concentrates on lesser understood native species such as bees, butterflies, and flowering plants. Where did you get your passion or why the passion for these particular beings? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess I wish I had more of a romantic answer, but the truth is up until my 20s, I thought wasps were bees and I thought they were pests and I was not interested in them at all other than to get them away from me. I grew up in this city, kind of disconnected from nature in some ways. So I can really relate to the people who maybe have overlooked these species. But as I completed my undergrad, I got involved with some research in a lab that used bumblebees for, I guess, like behavior experiments. So they had them in cages and they were giving them different tests, like seeing what colors they would choose and different nectar concentrations and things like that. So it was a behavioral ecology lab. And it meant that for me as an assistant, a research assistant, I had to sit inside the cages and replenish the flowers every time a bee, these are fake flowers, but every time a bee visited them. I had to get within inches of bumblebees and I spent hours and hours watching them very, very, very closely. So I kind of got over my fear of bees in that way. And then through that research and doing field research with the same lab, um, I realized that some of the species that were supposed to be outside in Southern Ontario were no longer there. So there was a, a PhD thesis that was done near Guelph in the 70s, and it showed that there were these 14 species, and I was surveying, you know, similar places for uh, other research projects, and I realized that the rusty patch bumblebee um, was missing, and it used to be very common in the 70s and 80s. So that's kind of how I decided to do my PhD work on assessing bumblebee declines and learning more about bumblebee ecology. So what's the decline like in bumblebees? Is it like the whales? I'm not too sure if it's like the whales. Um, it, it probably is in the sense that some species are doing better than others. Um, so in Canada, we have about 860 species of native bees. And for the vast majority, we know nothing about them. But for the bumblebees, which are the ones that I study, uh, we've been able to assess using museum specimen data 
um, all of their red list assessments. So using the IUCN red list uh, criteria, we were able to assess um, a bunch of the species or all of the species. And what we know is about a quarter of them are at risk of extinction. So um, based on some of the news headlines, you might think that all bees are endangered and that's not quite the case. But at the same time, one in four species of bumblebees being at risk of extinction is actually not great news either. And some have collapsed quite rapidly, like the rusty patch bumblebee, which hasn't been seen in Canada since 2009 when I last saw it, um, versus some other species that sort of decline more slowly. So maybe like 10% over the past um, decade or so. So one in four. And, and why is this important for us? Uh, there are a few reasons. So bumblebees are pollinators. Uh, they pollinate our crops, um, our food plants, not only in intensive agricultural areas, but also our gardens and our um, yards and our cities, our community gardens. Uh, they're really good buzz pollinators. They've adapted to our weather, unlike the European honeybee, which was brought here um, with early settlers. Uh, so the bumblebees actually can forage when it's cloudy days like we have today in Toronto. Uh, they're able to go out and forage because they use landmarks on the ground to navigate, whereas the honeybees use the sun and the position of the sun to navigate. So they And they also can thermoregulate. So there are records of bumblebees foraging when it's like pretty close to zero. And even if it's snowing, uh, they have these like warm, fuzzy jackets, as you can imagine. Uh, so they're able to pollinate in pretty bad weather, <laughs> uh, which is kind of when the blueberry flowers need to be pollinated out on the east coast of Canada um, and um, going into the fall uh, thinking about important plants like goldenrod which feed some of the birds that you know stay here over the winter and that kind of thing so um, there's that they pollinate wildflowers they pollinate our agricultural crops and our, our um, garden crops and then Probably the most important, but maybe least talked about importance is that as we're going through climate change and climate breakdown, it's really important that we have as many species in the system as possible. Because the more species we have, the more redundancy we have, and that gives us more resilience. So if there are a lot of species in a system and something happens, like say we get a spring storm that kind of wipes out some of the bees that are that are there. And with climate change, we are expected to get more spring storms. Um, having a lot of species means that maybe there are species that were still sleeping during that time and they'll come out two weeks later. So we'll still have some bees that will be able to pollinate um, the rest of the season, that kind of thing. So it's really important that we try to keep every single species and they are very different from each other. So even within the bumblebees, we have species that come out in early April versus species that come out in early June. We have species with long tongues that like visiting flowers like penstemon or like other tubular flowers. Um, and we have species with short tongues like the rusty patch bumblebee, which preferred things like goldenrods and like sort of flat aster type flowers. So having all of these different species really means that all the different plants are getting pollinated and um, things are getting pollinated at different times of the year as well. So what the f is pollination? It's basically a mating process between flowers. It's facilitated by pollinators like bees, butterflies, birds, and bats. These flying species transport pollen grains from the male part of the flower, called the stamen, to the female part of the flower, called the stigma. This cross-pollination results in the fertilization of the flower and production of seeds. So how do bumblebees help facilitate this? Well, they follow a four-step pollination process. First, they visit a flower to collect nectar. Second, they rub the pollen produced by the flower onto their body as they collect the nectar. 
Third, they carry the pollen on their body to another flower. And then fourth, they deposit the pollen to the stigma. So here's another question, Sheila. You just made me think. So bees pollinate, I guess, indigenous plants and flowers. They're attracted to them. Do manufactured or introduced flowers and plants, do they have any benefit for bees? Um, I guess in some sense they do. Um, if I guess you're kind of thinking about sort of different levels of goodness, right? So if you have a garden, a yard, and you asphalt it, that's probably the worst. If you put grass, then that's, you know, second worst. If you have some grass with a little bit of clover, which isn't a non-native plant, but it produces nectar, then that's like slightly better. Um, but if you had a yard with all native flowering plants, then that would be the best. So there's different levels. And in some cases, there's been quite a bit of work done thinking about integrated landscapes, how you can support pollinators a little bit better. And sometimes that means non-native plants, like along roadsides or in hydrofields and things like that. The preference would definitely be to have native plants because there are ways that bees have co-evolved with these plants that we don't even understand yet. I mean, <laughs> there's some really cool research about microbiomes and sort of ways that bees might choose plants that might help them fight parasites and that kind of thing. And like all of that, we don't really understand. So it's not as simple as just providing nectar and pollen. There's so many layers. So as much as we can keep, restore and protect our native habitats, that's definitely the best way to protect pollinators. But if the options are like lawn or asphalt, then yeah, like having a bunch of clover or dandelions or whatever is, is better than that option, if that makes sense. So when you hear the word microbiome, you might think of the bacteria in our guts and the health benefits they provide. But did you know that bees also rely on microbiomes for gut health? Social species of bees who live in a hive with one queen, like many types of bumblebees, actually share a microbiome. They feed on a shared food source in the hive, which provides them with the microorganisms they need for their gut health. These can help protect them from intestinal parasites and even boost the whole hive's immunity to disease. Make sure you check out our episode notes to learn more about the fascinating world of bee microbiomes. There's that campaign to plant a million trees in certain countries, a billion trees in other countries. So essentially it's it's regenerating wherever possible those what my research team has referred to as dead spaces mm -hmm. when we don't need to have them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are their biggest threats? So that's another thing that people maybe don't understand well enough. Um, so we just did a survey that was published. We did a poll um, across Canada. And what most people thought, the vast majority of people thought that what was threatening the bees the most were pesticide use and the loss of flowers. So that's a very common misconception, I guess. Um, <laughs> and part of that is because of a lot of the information that's coming out is about honeybees, so managed bees. So beekeepers are more worried about pesticides and loss of flowers because they bring their beehives into agricultural areas, which are degraded and have more pesticide use and that kind of thing. But for our native bees, the two biggest threats are pathogen spillover, so the spread of disease from managed bees to wild bees, particularly diseases that they have not evolved with. So this is something that we are seeing now with COVID-19 and we saw with the white nose syndrome in bats that when wildlife or when organisms are exposed to an illness that they have not evolved with, it can wipe them out quite rapidly. So that's what we think happened with the rusty patch bumblebee. We think something came in through managed bees 
and cause it to disappear essentially from 80% of its range at this point. And then the second thing is, is probably climate change. And that still needs to be researched a little bit more, but we're seeing signs of places that climate change might impact bees different in different ways. So the mismatch of flowers blooming compared to when bees emerge from the wintertime or if there's like a drought. So unlike honeybees, our native bees do not make honey. They don't store food. They sleep over the winter, whereas honeybees store food and then stay awake over the winter. Uh, so our bees don't keep a whole storage of nectar and pollen. They need to be able to eat every couple of days or whatever, um, or every day even. So um, any weather event that affects their ability to forage for pollen and nectar for more than a couple of days is probably a pretty significant um, issue. So anything that's like a storm or a drought or anything like that could be very um, dangerous to our, our native bees. So that's interesting, Sheila. I didn't know that those were the two main threats to their viability. And it's kind of interesting. We're doing to them what our encroachment on other wildlife habitats is doing to us in terms of viruses and introducing unknown, what would you call it, diseases or pathogens that are affecting them. And of course, given their sensitivity to climate change, which is, unless we get our act together, is only going to get worse. Do you have any hope for the future? <laughs> it, yeah, so being a conservationist is generally a bit of a downer in a lot of ways, as you probably know. <laughs> but I will say that in terms of the bumblebees, like I said, only one in four are at risk of extinction. So it's not too late to conserve the majority of our species. It's just really hard for me to communicate what the main threats are because so many people are sort of confused about managed bees versus wild bees and their different needs. So in terms of interests, conservation of bees is one of the like most interesting environmental issue. People just love talking about it. It's always in the media. People are always excited to hear about what I do. But for some reason, even though there is that public interest, the policy has sort of gone more towards conserving the European honeybee in North America, which is kind of a strange thing. It would be like conserving goldfish in Lake Ontario or pigeons in, you know, like Northwestern BC's like old growth forest. It doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> these are like very common, not at risk species that have been introduced and they're invasive in a lot of parts of the world. So I do have hope because there is the potential, but at the same time, I'm finding it very difficult to actually move the policy and the interest into a more evidence-based space, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So as you're very active on social media. That's how I stumbled across you because we are as well with the National Biodiversity Education Program. Mm -hmm. um, is that why you're so involved in social media, trying to get to the policy wonks? Yes, exactly. So it's a combination of that, um, using social media, but I also, even though it's not a traditional academic metric, I've spent a lot of time putting together things that are accessible for the public. So I published The Bumblebees of North America, which is published by Princeton University Press. So that's a field guide that people can use to identify bumblebees because there was not one before um, I started working on these. I've also done like uh, The Bees of Toronto, which is a free available guide, a bunch of flower planting guides with different uh, collaborators. So I'm really trying to get out there. And then we also have our free app called Bumblebee Watch. So it's a free phone app or a website, and people can help us look for rare species by submitting photos to that. And all of that really helps engage the public and is actually like some of the best things. People always ask me, like, what can I do to save the bees? And 
the best things that you can do is actually to like just learn about the different species and help us look for the different species and and track the different species it doesn't actually cost any money you don't have to buy a bee condo or you know have a yard where you have to plant these flowers i mean that stuff's good and helpful too but it's not the best thing that you can do oh wow i'm gonna get that app because um I live rurally, so I, I have a lot of bees because I have a natural gardens. So that's great. I ha- I didn't know about that app. You know, the more sophisticated we are in in our internet communication technologies, there are still gaps, right, in in knowledge and awareness, et cetera, et cetera. Earlier, you mentioned that bees sleep. Now, where do bees sleep during the winter? It depends on the species, but I guess generally underground and inside twigs. So you may have heard people saying like, don't clean up your garden in the fall. Don't trim your shrubs and things like that. So there are some types of bees that will actually live inside last year's raspberry and blackberry canes because those are sort of pithy stems. So if you throw out those dead stems, you're actually throwing out bees that are nesting or overwintering in those stems or even nesting. So there's that. And then there's like leaf litter, loose soil. Sometimes you hear of people when they're turning over their garden, they'll come across sleeping queens or compost piles. And in cities, you often find them kind of sneaking into houses or garages where there's some insulation to keep warm. Yeah, so there's a variety of places, but generally it's like inside trees or underground. So what is overwintering? This is a period where many different species wait out or pass the winter season. That's why leaf litter, which is made up of bark, twigs, plant stalks, and fallen leaves, is so important for healthy ecosystems. It offers overwintering habitat and nesting materials for many species. Frogs, toads, pollinators, slugs, snails, worms, spiders, beetles, and even millipedes use leaf litter like cozy winter blankets because it creates insulation from cold, fluctuating temperatures during the winter. So during the autumn months, make sure to leave the leaves on the ground. Yeah, another main reason not to clean up your leaves. And we started uh, social media and it was joined by others. And, you know, under your leaves is biodiversity. Leave it alone. Yep, for sure. I think even bats overwinter under leaf litter. Oh, I didn't know that. Some species. Yeah. We're so dependent on the critters and species that we share our world with. For example, at my cottage, we used to have a colony of about 400 brown-nosed bats. And they're just wonderful eaters of mosquitoes, right? Mm -hmm. And now with the nose fungus, the populations have been decimated here in the East. Well, we can hardly go out now until July because the mosquitoes are so bad. Right. Yeah. People... It's part of um, one of the projects that I'm working on with Lisa Myers, who's a professor in my faculty, and she's an Indigenous art curator, which sounds like a very odd collaboration. But we were talking and she has been studying this Mi'kmaq artist named Mike McDonald who passed away. And one of the things that he did as art exhibits was to plant pollinator gardens in the 90s, which you know seems so mainstream now, but at the time was radical. <laughs> and he made these places as places of contemplation so you can actually sit there and watch the butterflies visiting the flowers and thinking about the plants that are medicines and things like that and I find that that disconnect is there so you have people who love butterflies but don't want caterpillars on their plants or like don't worry about the bats but are really annoyed when we have a lot of mosquitoes around but so just thinking about how we can communicate better that all these things are connected and interconnected and I think that'll go a long way if we're trying to communicate why we need to conserve everything in the system not just you know the showy good-looking wildlife 
Right. And it's often the, the smallest, simpler uh, steps and beings that we neglect. And then this issue of connection, I've, I've said, and I think others have said this, if you don't know something, mm-hmm. you won't love it and you won't save it. Yeah. I think there's definitely truth to that. I think also it would be very hard to know all 860 species of bees. So I think part of just knowing about pollinators is appreciating that there are hundreds and thousands of different species and that we need to keep them all without actually being able to identify what each of those things are. Um, That would be a bit challenging. Right. Now I'm going to get very self-interested here. Do bees sting easily? And why do they sting? That's, I guess, another misconception based mostly on people knowing mostly about honeybees. So honeybees have these massive colonies of 10 to 60,000 individuals, 10,000 to 60,000 individuals. So the worker bees do sting to protect the hive and all of the honey that they've stored. And because there are so many individuals, they have barb stingers, so they actually die after they sting because the stinger gets stuck in your skin. But none of our native species do that. None of our native bee species have barb stingers. Our bumblebees can sting because they too have hives that they are protecting, smaller hives, uh, so they won't die when they sting you. But the vast majority of our species are actually solitary and most of them can't sting. Or if they do sting, it's not enough to like prick your skin. They're so small. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of things that people think about about bees that are just wrong. (laughs) Um, So being really aggressive, stinging, dying when they sting, being yellow and black, um, living in hives, making honey. All these things are like not common if you're thinking about our native bees. Um, our most common group of native bees is actually like silvery gray, the sweat bees, not yellow and black. <laughs> um, and most of them can't sting. Most of them are solitary. Most of them live underground, not in hives. Yeah. So it's another thing that, um, oh, and none of them make honey. So that's always surprising to people that none of our native bees make honey. <laughs> Oh, I'm learning so much. I didn't know any of this about bees at all. Yeah, I'm not really sure why, where we've lost the way in terms of our communication, because my five-year-old knows all these Latin names for all of these dinosaurs. Uh, So it's not like we don't have the capacity to learn about all these different species and ways of living, but I think it actually has something to do with colonialism and, you know, Canada being a settler and colonized country because we've really focused on this like European species as like the thing that is representative of the bee when it absolutely is not. So yeah, just again, going back to like trying to think about how we can build people's connections to the land, to the native plants and to the native wildlife that is here. That's all stuff that we need to communicate better. Yeah, that's an excellent point because we've been so influenced. John Roston Saul has an interesting book. I don't know the title and I can't see it from here, but he talks about how we were a more sharing culture. Our indigenous peoples were more sharing Mm -hmm. and very different from the European countries that came in. Mm -hmm. And then we adopted more the European culture towards our indigenous people. So it's kind of an interesting historical perspective and you sort of wonder, we have such, so much ecological illiteracy, don't we though? Right, exactly. We're so educated in so many, you know, in our professions, in our areas of specialization, but we know so little about the stuff that really sustains us. It's the same as the COVID-19, I think, has shown us. 
ironically, that the people that are the most undervalued and underpaid, you know, the garbage collectors, the clerks in the supermarkets, et cetera, mm. are, have actually kept us going throughout the pandemic. Yeah, the essential workers, yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and also, too, what critical infrastructure we need to have more resilient communities. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's really gotten to me thinking about pollinator conservation and having studied it from a time when no one was thinking about it to now when everybody is worried about it, um, it's just really striking to me that the way people want to conserve animals is to like manage them, like physically touch them and do stuff with them. And that kind of goes away from what I think needs to happen, which is like to let things be and to like nurture our native ecosystem. So the way people want to help the bees is to have a beehive on their rooftop, right? Which is such a like Mm -hmm. strange, maybe Western mindset that to help the environment, we need to like manage it in that way. We need to like bring in our own replacement species and feed them this like made-up food that we engineered in a lab or whatever. Um, It's just really striking to me that our solutions are so artificial. And, yeah, I just, like, I kind of wish that we were beyond that at this point in civilization, that we could actually see how conserving that old-growth forest or that tall grass prairie and, you know, removing weeds a little bit as needed – but how that is actually like land stewardship that needs to happen to promote biodiversity and not just our ideas of what can replace. Like even the idea of bee condos instead of like leaving messy raspberry cane bushes, like to actually like purchase for $17.99 from Costco this like structure that, you know, won't get cleaned, won't biodegrade or whatever is like a replacement for nature. Why do we need to replace nature? Why can't we just work with nature and observe nature and, and, and do it that way? So that's another thing that I've really been struggling while thinking about this field and how to get things moving in the right way. Because if pathogen spillover from managed bees is one of the main threats, then the way to fix that is to have healthy landscapes that don't require bees to be brought in to pollinate. We need to have enough natural native pollinators in the landscapes to pollinate our crops. So we don't need to bring in these colonies with a lot of diseases and have them exposed to lots of pesticides and that kind of thing. So it's really like big picture thinking about how our food systems are working and how our ecosystems are working and how to best support all these ecosystem services we rely on. So what are ecosystem services? Well, nature gives many benefits to humans. From the air we breathe to the water we drink and the food we eat, it freely provides the essentials we need for survival. Drawing from a Western science perspective, they're broken down into four categories. The first is supporting services. These keep ecosystems functioning healthy. They include pollination, photosynthesis, soil creation, and nutrient cycling. The second is provisioning services. These include anything extracted from nature to benefit humans, such as food, water, timber, minerals, and medicine from plants. The third is regulating services. These ensure ecosystems are resilient and sustainable through processes like air and water filtration by plants, pest control by ladybugs, and decomposition of waste by bacteria. The final one is cultural services. These support our physical, mental, and emotional health. For example, nature facilitates outdoor recreation, inspires art, and even influences culture. And part of that, Sheila, you may not know this, is our campaign is to try to influence the federal, provincial, and municipal governments to protect 50% of Canada's spaces by 2030. Mm -hmm. I think the Prime Minister has just committed to 30% by 
2030, but we think it should be 50%, which will provide what we're calling that is it's the shelves of the library of biodiversity. So you're sustaining the shelves. And there's another campaign that argues for nature needs half. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's our mindset, right, that we can manage the environment, that we can discover the rules of the universe rather than I think the only thing we can manage is ourself and our own behavior in the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And when we do set aside protected areas, um, they can't be those places where humans aren't, right? They have to be like within our agricultural landscapes, within our cities. Um, it has to sort of be these these corridors that travel within all of these disturbed areas. So the animals, the plants have places to move around and disperse and all the genes are mixing and that kind of thing. So it's really important because I think a lot of times when people think like 30%, it's just that number, but it also matters where those things are. They can't be separated from where we have our biodiversity. They need to be within in every single little spot possible. We need to incorporate all of that that habitat. Yes, that's well put. And they need to be connected spaces, right? We get back to connectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, Sheila, thank you for your work. And thank you for everything I've learned today. And I'm sure our listeners will be excited to learn. We will have on the website that publicizes the podcast, your app and links to your books. So be well during these difficult times. And your time has been so valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to What the F*** is Biodiversity. Today's episode was produced by Lot2 Media and the National Environmental Treasure and edited by B. Joel Cran. The music was also composed by B. Joel Cran. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about our NGO, which we call NET for short, visit our website at OurSafetyNet.org. Also, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to help us spread the word about biodiversity, you can find us on Canada Helps.